This is Motley Full Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. <laughs> Personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Um, cheerio, everybody. Yeah, that's right. Brexit, it's a thing that's trying to happen. And on today's episode, we're joined by Sam Robeson from our UK office, and he's going to answer roughly 10 questions about the Brexit that you're too embarrassed to ask. But I'm not. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, over the past year or so, I've talked with... Quite a few retirees, friends, family, fools, who are kind of like right on the razor's edge of retirement security. Like, if everything goes perfectly, they'll probably be okay. But if something happens, like an unexpected expense shows up or a prolonged market downturn, they're going to be in trouble. And the one thing all these folks had was they retired too early. They retired at a point when they had some money. Some reason they thought that's enough. It turns out that it was maybe just enough if everything goes perfectly, but they don't have a margin of safety. And for some of these people, they're putting off things like home repairs, medical expenses, things like that, because it's made them nervous. So, because of that, I did some digging into some various studies that would really quantify the value of delaying retirement just a few years. I came up with a few. I'm only going to highlight one, um, but repeatedly over and over, it shows that just delaying a few years is going to significantly enhance your retirement security if you're right at that edge of whether you have enough or not. So, but I'm just going to highlight one study for this. What's up, bro? It was called "The Viability of the Spend Safely in Retirement Strategy." Catchy title. So catchy. I know. So basically, it's a follow-up to a 2017 study that was a joint project of the Stanford Center on Longevity and the Society of Actuaries. So they got together to say, like, what's the best retirement income strategy for folks? They looked at 292 strategies. Wow. They decided that one, the one that's the best, has a few aspects to it, but the two keys are number one. You base your withdrawals on the same percentages that are used to calculate retired, re, the required minimum distributions from IRAs. So instead of just doing that old classic 4%, you use these IRS tables. When you're actually in your 60s, it's actually lower than 4%, but it gradually goes up. But the other key component is delaying Social Security to age 70, which study after study shows is what people should do, but only like 4 to 6% of people actually do it. This is a follow up study. 87 pages long. I'm not to go all into it, but I'm going to just highlight. Did you read the whole thing? I did read the whole thing. Yeah, you did. Of course, I did. Dramatic readings. Uh, But I'm just going to highlight one example that quantified the power of delaying, but it had an interesting component to it because I think a lot of people, when they reach age 62, which is a common retirement age because that's when you can claim Social Security, they might in the back of their mind think, I probably don't have enough money, but they just can't stand working full time anymore. What this study showed is. What happens if you reach 62 and you just work part-time for a while? So here are the numbers. Here's the scenario, at least for one of the illustrations. So let's say you're a retired couple. Let's say you're a married couple. You reach age 62. You are still working. Your household income collectively is $100,000. You save 10% a year, and your retirement savings is $350,000. So good, but not a lot. According to their calculations, if you retire full-time at 62, you'll have a retirement income of about $38,000. So you've gone from earning $100,000 while working and then having to live on $38,000. Not enough. What if instead 
you go part-time at 62 and then work to age 66 and a half, which is their full retirement age for Social Security purposes. You increase your income to $52,000. What if instead you work full-time all the way to age 70? You increase it to $70,000. But what if instead you again go, you reach 62, work part-time to age 70, your income will be $68,000. So that's pretty good. Working full-time to 70, you can make $70,000. Working part-time to 70, you make $68,000. Not that big of a difference. So what I liked about this, again, is that for some people, they just think, oh, I just can't work anymore. But if you can stick it out and work part-time, you're essentially retired part-time, and you you double the amount of income you can have in retirement. The bottom line here is, for any study like this, you have to make a lot of assumptions that obviously don't apply to everyone. In fact, don't apply to most people. What's important is what your situation looks like. The real power of delaying comes from delaying Social Security, and it does presume that you haven't saved enough. If you feel like you're in that camp, just go online, play with some retirement calculators, put in some different ages, and you'll see for yourself the power of delaying. If it really helped for you to delay, strongly consider doing it because working just a few more years can increase your income for the rest of your life and you're going to enjoy your retirement a lot more. And that is what's up. of 2016, just a smidge over half of voters in the UK voted via referendum to leave the European Union, or the EU. The not-so-simple process turned out to be even more complicated than anticipated. And here we are in October of 2019, still talking about it. Well, yes, some people are talking about it. The rest of us are just nodding and saying, hmm, hard exit, yes, okay. So today, I'm going to ask some really ignorant questions about the Brexit so that you don't have to. And joining me to do that is Sam Rubson. And he is out of the UK, and he uh, manages editorial operations for our European countries, right? Does that sound right, That Sam? is correct, Yeah. So Glad you, to be here. Yeah, thank you for for being on. And so you manage UK and Germany, and what else am I forgetting? Canada as well, actually. Oh, in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you're everywhere. Well, thank you truly for joining global. us. Yeah, truly. So I have um, literally just ten questions, ten really ignorant questions around the Brexit to ask you, and I really appreciate you. Um, not uh, like just being open to how uh, maybe embarrassing, really bad these questions are going to be. No problem at all. All right, so let's kick it off. Ready? Can I ask a, can I oh, ask yeah. a clarification question? Oh, so, sure. Sam, where are you right now? Right now, I'm in London. All right, so you are um, so in the actually, heart of it. You are. I'm you in the are, heart of it. You are a man on the scene for this. <laughs> He's if like, I'm, if I'm I am 100% standing honest, I'm in, actually in uh, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's constituency right now as we speak. And so, I have uh, no uh, idea what that means. It sounds so really good. impressive. It sounds so great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy for you. You'll have to define that for me later. <laughs> I will. <laughs> There'll be an appendix. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's kick it off with a super embarrassing question. What is the European Union? The European Union is an economic union. 
So the European Union has 28 different countries, um, as you might imagine, that are in Europe. And the main factor between them is that they trade with each other. Um, and that's all under you know one set of rules and regulations um, that they all abide by. Um, and further to that, citizens are able to move freely and easily to live and work between each of these 28 countries. Um, so yeah, that's basically what it is. It kind of was formed uh, post-World War II um, as a way to prevent further conflict uh, between European nations. And I think there are about 10 countries or so that joined initially. Um, but as you might imagine, um, it's an open membership as long as nations um, apply the European law in, and integrate that into their own national law, as well as um, go by the various EU rules and regulations and stipulations. If they meet all these terms and conditions, then they too can be part of the EU. Um, at the same time, as you might imagine, as you might have heard, you can leave the EU, which is what we're seeing currently with uh, Brexit. And um, we we didn't actually, as the UK, we didn't actually join the EU until relatively late. I think it was 1972. Um, and this is one stat that I found out in my research for this, which I find personally quite interesting. There was a referendum held uh, three years later in 1975. Um, over the continued membership um, of the UK in the EU. And a whopping 67% of the British public then voted to remain, which um, you might uh, well know is in contrast to the 2016 referendum's result that 52% of the British public wanted to leave Europe. I think I just assumed that the European Union was like, hey, we're all cool. Like, you don't have to worry about, like, showing your passport when you cross borders. But it's, it's now I'm learning that it's much more complicated than that. So, can you talk a little bit more about, um, like, like, really what is involved when it comes to, like, trade and rules and just, you know, the fun stuff? Even currencies. Yeah. Even currencies. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the EU has a um, single market and customs union. So like I said before, uh, all the participating countries have to abide by these by these laws. In terms of currency, um, not everyone is using the same currency. So we uh, in the UK, we still use the British pound sterling, um, but the, the euro is um, in most, most of the other European countries. Um, in terms of the what what happens, <laughs> what what the EU covers, um, it's essentially be, being part of the membership allows the free movement um, between EU countries of what's known as the four freedoms. Now, the four freedoms are goods, people, services, and capital, and. Um, there are no hard borders between neighbouring EU countries. Uh, there are no tariffs imposed, uh, you know, additional tariffs imposed on, on trade between these two countries. So in theory, it sounds like a good thing, right? Um, the EU has this combined value-added tax system, so everyone should trade harmoniously. Um, and yeah, it's on paper, like I say, a very fantastic thing to be part of. So who are, if you can kind of help us understand, the people or the parties, politicians that want the UK out of the EU and sort of why? Like, why Why now? What's going on? The why is a very good question. So I'd say that it's largely the Conservative uh, Party who are currently in power. Um, 
David Cameron in his 2015 election manifesto actually uh, called for, uh, for the, the referendum to be held on whether we uh, remain in Europe or not. The irony is that he is or was pro-EU. Um, so during this referendum uh, build-up, he campaigned to, to stay um, and to remain in Europe. But as uh, history dictated, he failed. And uh, the, Brit the British public voted to leave in um, the following year. The day afterwards, Mr Cameron stepped down because uh, he, he failed. He saw it as a failure on his behalf. Uh, the further irony is that his successor, Theresa May, also was pro-EU and campaigned to stay in Europe. So you might expect um, or you might consider the fact that, you know, Brexit, here we are three years down the line and Brexit hasn't been delivered. You might think that that's a certainty when there are these pro-EU um, leaders in charge um, of it at the moment. That has all changed. Um, one man uh, during the campaigning was constantly beating the drum for Brexit. And you might recognize him by not only his haircut, by, by the name <laughs> of uh, Mr. one Mr. Boris Johnson mm -hmm. or uh, Bojo, if I may be so bold. Bojo. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so he really wanted to um, Britain to leave uh, Europe. And mainly the reason for that was so that he could... Uh, get the UK trading freely with not only European countries, but uh, other countries outside of this continent. And he wanted to, the ability to, um, to negotiate favorable trade terms with other economies, uh, the US being one of them. And I know from following President Trump's Twitter account that uh, he's, he's in favor of this um, on the whole. Uh, in recent days and recent weeks, he hasn't been too impressed with the deal that uh, uh, Bojo has uh, put on the table, um, which isn't too dissimilar to what Theresa May had previously offered um, as well. So you can, you're starting to get a sense that it's quite hard to, to deliver a Brexit bill that everybody is happy about. And we're talking about everyone. It's uh, every like all of the political parties in the UK and the people running the like there are people that run the EU right again this is like it's embarrassing to do shows like this because it just shows how dumb I am and how much I didn't um, cram for the test um, but what is being like negotiated like why is this being why is this taking so long and what's being negotiated well it's probably taking so long for a couple of reasons partly because um, Article 50 was triggered and uh, under, I believe it's called the Lisbon Treaty, um, which was set back in 2009, um, all of the European nations have to concur, have to come to an agreement. Oh, uh, oh that sounds if, awful. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, not only do you have to win the entire support of all the remaining 27 countries, um, you have to you have to get the bill passed in British Parliament as well. You have to get a, a majority vote on, on the bill that you're providing there. So you've got these two camps who are essentially opposed, conflicted, all of the above. Um, and this is the reason why we haven't currently come to any firm conclusion over the past three, four years or so. Um, it's it's a mess is um is, is fair to say i think you, you'll agree um and i think what some of the big problems um that we're looking at is that when voters decided to back the leave campaign 
they didn't know what that entailed. There wasn't any um, definition in terms of what um, what exactly was going to happen once we voted, once we had the referendum. And we're seeing that now. And between with the conflict and the negotiations, essentially, there's it comes down to going back to those four freedoms, goods, people, service, services and capital. We're trying to ascertain the best way of processing those four freedoms across the, the UK and EU borders post-Brexit. And lots of different, different people and parties have varying ideas on uh, how, that should, um, how that should come about. And I'll finish off by saying the main outcomes at the moment uh, that people are in conflict about which, which, to, which road to go down um, lie in the state of a soft Brexit mm-hmm. and a hard Brexit. Now, I they sound like various forms of boiled eggs to me, so I'll kind of <laughs> try totally and. <laughs> <do>. <laughs> so I'll try and give some kind of clarification in a in a nutshell or in an eggshell what what they <laughs> what they may, might mean. <laughs> but um, a hard Brexit would essentially see a definitive split from EU powers. That would mean the UK coming out of the single market, out of the customs union, out of the courts of justice that we're, we're currently in. On the positive side, according to the Brexiteers, that would mean there's the freedom to set our own rules and regulations, our own ability to make trade, trade deals with other countries. And this would be good for UK companies that um, trade solely within Britain. On the negative side of things, there would very likely be tariffs for com- those companies that do rely on trade with the EU. And we live in a global world, so that's going to be a lot. So that's the hard Brexit scenario. A soft Brexit is essentially a middle ground between full EU membership, which we have currently, and the aforementioned hard Brexit. So we'd enjoy certain aspects of um, that membership, um, such as agreed tariffs, um, in theory, frictionless trades, standardised regulations, in return for Britain's cooperation with the EU um, over, all to be detailed in negotiations further down the line. So it would have to be um, a a joint effort. And um, we'd, although we wouldn't necessarily be in Europe per se, then we would still have strong ties. And according to a lot of the Brexiteers, as uh, we're calling them these days, this is simply unacceptable. Um, they, they're the ones who are beating their drum saying Brexit means Brexit. And uh, they don't want to uh, be tied to the EU's rules and regulations anymore in any way, shape or form. So that is a long-winded way way of explaining where the conflict lies and what just why it's taking so long. Mm-hmm. So when we um, get to watch Parliament yelling at each other here in the U.S., it's awesome. It is quite entertaining. It is so great <laughs> to see because you know we. I mean, we're Americans, so we think that uh, British people are just amazing and and so like formal and great. But then you see them like yelling at each other and saying, Order. "Sit down!" <laughs> and it's just like the best thing ever. Um, this is a little side note, but what is actually going on when everyone's yelling at each other? Are they really like voting on stuff or trying to convince people or are they just like grants? Like what is going on? 
it is a cauldron of emotions. Yeah, and, it's you awesome. Know, <laughs> there, there's a dedicated uh, news channel, BBC Parliament, where you can watch this all day long. So if that's your bag, then, you know, I'm sure we can. We can <laughs> oh, I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> um, I think, to be honest, as a quick side note, I think the one of the most entertaining aspects of it is um, we've had uh, what's known as the Speaker of the House for the past decade, um, a guy called John Burko. Uh, sadly, as of um, the 31st of October, he stepped down from his post and he was the one who uh, in my opinion made this whole thing so entertaining and he was he was a neutral party who was essentially a, a school teacher trying to to calm the unruly children but mm-hmm. with very, very little success um but to your point about what is going on that is progress being made essentially no mm-hmm. um and that's that's been you know proved by the fact that we're here we are in late 2019 um, without any firm agreement within uh, the MPs, the members of parliament, on what the best route forwards for the country is. Um, so we've had several, through both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, we've had several uh, bills that have been approved by the EU, but when it comes to bringing it back to parliament for their approval, then they've been roundly rejected. Mm. So we return to stalemate. Um, and then the latest news coming out of um, out of the Parliament is that, right, Boris Johnson has a grand plan. He wants to call um, an, a general election. Quick side note, this is the third general election we'll have seen in uh, since 2015. And wow. they're supposed to be one every five years normally. So um, I think there's an element of fatigue uh, voting fatigue perhaps um but we are a highly politicized um nation at the moment so hey maybe we just love a vote at the moment right (laughs) Um, but yeah so mr johnson uh to use his formal name um believes that he can by calling this general election he can win more seats um in the house of commons and by winning more seats than he currently has then he can force through um, the Brexit bill that he desires. Because at the moment, um, he's having to essentially pander to um, those who want a a softer Brexit than the hard uh, or even no-deal Brexit that that Boris may want himself. Um, So he believes that he can get the majority by calling the general election now because he believes the British public um, just want to go for Brexit now. They're sick and tired of everything that's been going on, all the dallying and the delays. Um, and on the flip side, um, the leader of the opposition, um, Labour's Jeremy Corbyn, he believes that this is the prime time um, for the general, a general election to happen because he believes that um, that the British public similarly are frustrated with the current government's inability to deliver Brexit and uh, to a, in a satisfactory manner. So he believes this is a great time to for his party to win power. Um, the quote unquote third dominant party, the Liberal Democrats, um, broadly agree with Labour, but actually they're firmly against uh, Brexit in any way, shape or form. And they believe that if they can win enough seats in Parliament and one of their um, manifesto promises is to hold yet another referendum 
at, aimed at the British public um, on whether we should go through with Brexit or not, now that we know what we know in the past three years. So at this stage, um, anything can happen. And that's a scary position to be in. Yeah. And so now we've got the, I was going to say the names for things are degrading because now we've got the flex tension, which is we weren't right. We were going to have the deadline was going to be October 31. Uh, but now we're moving to January thirty-one, and what is the? Well, we're just just pushing it farther down the road, aren't we? We are, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, with your um, your assumption that uh, the names are degrading. I genuinely thought at the beginning that Brexit was a horrible name and wouldn't catch on. So I've got egg on my face at the moment. Um, <laughs> so you just keep coming back to the eggs, huh? Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, yeah I, so, I, I, I don't um, mind Brexit. I think that's an okay name, but flex tension. I don't even. I don't even. That's something that people suffer from, and they have to go see their yeah. doctor. If well, you're suffering that, from flex uh, tension, <laughs> ask your at least doctor. That at least has a, a limited shelf life, if you like. It, it yeah, should be no longer than three months. We shouldn't be hearing that uh, past, like you say, 31st of January. Um, p- potentially even before then. Like I say, it's it's a flexible extension. Um, if the if the parliament agrees on a Brexit bill before the 31st of Jan, then the EU has agreed that the UK can um, leave Europe. Mm. Uh, before before the 31st of January. So we'll see what happens then, um, but that's the state of play at the moment. So, okay, so if I understand it correctly, um, everything has to be negotiated, both EU and internally with in the UK. And even though the part about negotiating with the EU involves getting sign-off from so many countries, the actual real stumbling block is within your own country and getting consensus? Do I have that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, like we say, we've seen so many bills try to be passed through mm-hmm. Parliament at the moment. And uh, at this stage, it's just not happening. Yeah. So it's out. And also, it sounds like because you're having this election coming up that um, everyone's trying to, or politicians are trying to take advantage of what they feel is the prevailing emotion here. But how do you think people are feeling? I would be fatigued, I think, at this point. But how would you, def- how would you describe it? Fatigued is absolutely right. Uh, I'd say angry. I'd say confused. I'd say frustrated. Um, I think I mentioned earlier the uh, in, in terms of um, Parliament being a cauldron of emotions. I'd say that's a microcosm for the whole nation at the moment. Um, I think on one side you have the people who voted to leave and they're frustrated. They can't see why there are so many obstacles. Why it hasn't happened so so far. You have the people who voted to remain and. Uh, they now they now see what they believe were lies during the um, the Leave campaign, and they believe you know essentially it was an unlawful um, result because the British public weren't fully informed about what would entail the, what the whole Brexit process would entail afterwards. And I think the one uniting factor between the two different camps is one of overall frustration because you know the MPs don't seem to have. Um, the public's uh, well-being on uh, first and f- first and foremost, they don't seem to be considering how um, how it's impacting us, how it's going to impact the British public. They're not making progress towards this common goal. And like I say, if Boris Johnson wants to call this election, 
we saw that happen um, with Theresa May back in 2017 after the referendum because she also wanted to solidify her uh, majority in Parliament. That ended up having the opposite reaction, and that was two years ago. So do we face two more years of uncertainty? Who knows? We might even be faced with a no-deal Brexit um, if the EU decide not to extend um, extend deadlines any further. I think it's fair to say they've been very uh, generous up until this point. And from my personal point of view, I think a no-deal Brexit would be the worst-case scenario because that would likely see an economic crash because um, the UK would leave Europe, with, as it says in the title, without any deal. Um, and therefore, there'd be no trading um, immediately with all of the European countries because they wouldn't have had that time to negotiate, um, which is supposed to be between nine and 15 months, I think, is the, the agreed um, period of time for negotiations when Britain actually leaves Europe. Um, these European countries would likely have to ask the rest of Europe for a bailout. Um, because they, yeah, like I say, they don't have the, they won't have the UK uh, trade, which they currently do have, and they won't have had the time to get to make uh, provisions for for when they uh, have to set up the new rules and regulations. Um, there'd be expats stranded abroad. Um, there'd be huge, there'd be hard borders straight away. And there'd likely be huge queues um, because we don't currently have the infrastructure set up to cope with all of this. And potentially, worst of all, because prices are likely to be inflated on the likes of food and medical supplies, we might see a shortage of those two things um, in, the in the near term because because those provisions weren't set out because they, we didn't have that time to account for um for this worst case scenario that's, that's playing out. So it really is um, a tricky one. And I think the supporters of um, the likes of Bojo's no deal, no deal Brexit say that there'll be short term pain for long term gain because then the, you know, in time the UK would be able to make their own policies um, on migration and um, have full control over borders and make these trade deals. But in the near term, we would see a lot of instability and that does not sit well with the British public. Here in the US, we're kind of, as you probably know, a bit of a, a country divided in that when we go home for Thanksgiving or we go home for Christmas, like talking about politics around the family table can be a bit tough um, because there's pretty polar um, polar feelings over what's going on in our government. Is it similar in the UK where like, if you go home for Christmas, you're going to be like, well, we can't talk about Brexit because Uncle Lou over there, whatever your typical uncle's names are, Nigel, Nigel, Uncle, uncle Nigel. Nigel over there has pretty strong feelings. This like he's a hard right. Do you have like an uncle who's like really hard Brexit, and you're just like, oh, gotta go home for Christmas and sit across the table from him? I do named Uncle Nigel. Do you, <laughs> are you serious? You do not. No, sorry. <laughs> um, but no, absolutely. That is that's totally fair enough, and I think we saw. Through the um, through the demographics afterwards, that it was largely um, the baby boomer generation that were voting um, to leave Europe, and it was mainly millennials and the younger generations uh, who leaving Europe would actually most affect um, who would, who were voting for Remain. And um, there were a lot of campaigns targeted 
uh, towards these different demographics. Um, and as, exactly as you say, that has led to conflict. It doesn't really matter where in the UK you live. Um, we all essentially live in our own bubble. And I feel that, you know, during the during the referendum, I felt, oh, you know, it's all going to be fine. Um, we're, we're not going to crash out of crash out of Europe. But then I was in my own little bubble through peers, friends, family, social media. Um, so and I think everyone else was, regardless of what side of the um, fence they were sitting on when it came to the result. Um, so it was essentially a shock to everyone. Um, so yeah, so Christmas this year will be very interesting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Just like our election in 2016, the Brexit election did have a certain nationalistic feel to it, right? I mean, and some Correct. of the concerns were similar, right? Where people in the UK were concerned that these people could easily come over from Poland, for example, and take their jobs because they're willing to work for lower pay. There was sort of that anti, I don't know if you even call it immigrant, but that anti-outsider vibe to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that, you know, a lot of these things were hyped up um, by, for example, the the Leave campaign. Um, but again, this comes down to what the um, Remainers, or if you are in the Leave campaign, you would refer to them as the Remoners, um, through all the moaning that they're, they're doing because <laughs> Brexit hasn't been delivered. Um that, you know, there was this uh, campaign of lies and, you know, you could argue that immigration was central to that. But um, at the same time, whatever happens, whatever the new normal is going to be, whichever side of the fence you're on um, at the time, then it's probably not going to make too much of a difference because there's there's bigger fish to fry at the moment. Outside of the entertainment value, oh, that sounds so bad that I'm just like sitting here and like, I'm not sitting here on my side of the pond and laughing at you guys, but outside of enjoying watching your parliament go at it, um, how should an investor or people outside of the UK feel about what's going on? Do I need to be con- concerned or am I just, uh, do I just get to sit back and watch? I think it's fair to say that um, everything is in its current state is unresolved. Um, there's virtually no businesses in the UK that won't be affected by Brexit. And we've known that for a long period of time. What isn't um, confirmed at the moment is what sort of Brexit we'll see. Um, so I think that is a sticking point at the moment. And that is obviously weighing on the financial market. I think it would be fair to say that quality businesses would be those that are prepared for any eventuality. And, you know, that's something that we advocate here at The Fool. We, we advocate investing in quality businesses with um, moats, competitive advantages, solid management teams that have the shareholders' interests at heart. Um, so with Brexit, you know, Brexit shouldn't change that. Brexit shouldn't change the structures of these, these companies. And they are, as I mentioned before, they should be ready and prepared for whatever the new normal maybe be that a soft Brexit, a hard Brexit, even a no-deal Brexit. So I think at the moment for investors and people outside of the UK, it's one to watch with interest, perhaps more interest than concern, because it comes back to what Warren Buffett says, you know, be greedy when others are fearful. And I, I wonder whether potentially there are many buying opportunities uh, in some great quality businesses here in the UK at the moment, um, while the share prices are depressed. So 
it's certainly one to to watch out for and um, keep keep a cl- close eye on. Sam, thank you so much for joining us and explaining this. This has been this has been very this has been great for me. I, I, really, I really appreciate it because it's I really been, it's been cathartic for me as well. To oh, be honest. I'm so glad. No, I mean I I I did do some homework and read a few like a number of articles, but I think this story has just been going on for so long. Like it's it's like I need a I needed a book to kind of catch up, and so this was this was very helpful for helpful for me, and I really enjoyed it. And it's always nice to chat with you too. Well, and you guys, and like I say, it's definitely been cathartic. It's been fantastic for me to to research further into something that's so complicated that um, not even the experts know what's going on. So yeah. uh, it's a it's a moving target, and uh, everything's going to be changing from day to day. But uh, at least, hopefully, I was able to give a quick summary of uh, what, what the state of play is right now. I appreciate it, and you're actually going to be coming out here in a couple weeks, in a week. Um, uh, yeah, and yeah, next Friday. I believe. Are you are you tasked with bringing a snack from the UK? And if you are, I'm wondering what snack you're bringing. I am. So currently, oh. you guys don't I have wine it. gums, do you? What? Wine, wine gum? gums. So they're they're not alcoholic. They're meant to taste like alcohol. They don't. But um, <laughs> but that is that is typical of the British culture. And then, have you heard of Tullock's tea cakes? No, no, but they sound slightly more appetizing. <laughs> well, again, it's very British tea and crumpets and that kind of thing. There's nothing tea related to, to do with it, but they're, they're great with a cup of tea. But I'll, I'll at least be bringing those, and I know that um, there's a couple of other UK fools coming over who are who are also going to be bringing out um, some some UK-based treats. One quick question: yeah. I know you guys have you guys have Kit Kats, but you don't have chunky Kit Kats, do you? Not that I know no. of. I don't. I might have to make sure. What are what those. are the chunks in a chunky Kit Kat? Oh, it's an oversized Kit Kat. It's it's almost four oh. Kit Kats layered on top of each other. Oh my! Oh, there. it's just a really big. It's like a Kit Kat sandwich. Exactly. Exactly. Um, oh my gosh. So yeah. No. It's, it's maybe a bit too much for in one sitting, but I'll definitely bring those <laughs> over. Why not? <laughs> I'm looking forward to your, your arrival even more now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can they be deep fried? Because you're bringing them to America, so. <laughs> Oh, that's the first place I had a deep fried Mars bar was in the UK. I still haven't had a deep fried Mars bar. I've only been to, I I think Scotland is the domain for that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, unless our um, plane is diverted via Glasgow or Edinburgh, then uh, that might not be possible on this occasion. Yeah, don't don't bring that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you to have to carry that on the plane. Um, (laughs) Sam, thank you so much again for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Well, that's the show. It's edited Milk Chocolate Hobnobbly by Rick Engdahl. It's a delicious cookie from the UK. Don't worry about it. Never heard of it. Oh, it's good. I'm sure Sam would bring you some. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.